This episode of The Trail Less Traveled is sponsored by Osea Malibu, the original plant-based, results-driven skincare line. Every product is sustainably packaged, non-toxic, cruelty-free, vegan, and made with love in California. Osea puts your health and the health of the planet first. Go to oseamalibu.com slash Mandela. Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at trailestravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. This evening on The Trail Less Traveled, we'll be featuring interviews with four South Africans from diverse backgrounds. Each of these South Africans will reflect on South African history and their own unique perspective on apartheid, given the culture that they grew up in. We are in the studio with my good friend, Floyd Kumalo. Floyd was born in Soweto, a township outside of Johannesburg, South Africa. Floyd grew up during apartheid and experienced South Africa as it transitioned from apartheid to a fully democratic government. Apartheid was a period of time in South Africa where racial segregation was legitimized and enforced by a white government. Floyd Kumalo proudly voted for Nelson Mandela when he was 18 years old in an election where Nelson Mandela was voted the first president representing a fully democratic South Africa. Floyd, let's talk about some of the history of South Africa leading up to apartheid. Well, what I've heard often is that South Africa is no man's land in that the Bantu group was not originally from South Africa and that the Bushmen or the Khoi were the people who lived in Southern Africa for a long, long time. Even today, when you're traveling in the desert area in Namibia and Botswana and part of the Cape in South Africa, you still have the Khoi that lived the way they did. If you remember the movie, The Ghost Must Be Crazy, the type of bushman that hunts and collects water in an ostrich egg. So the Bantu groups, which I'm part of, moved down from the north, and they were cattle grazers, hunter-gatherers at the same time, which means they hunted for their food, but they also kept a herd of cattle. A very strong family structure environment where polygamy was an acceptable way to avoid divorce because if a woman were to leave her husband or her husband were to leave his wife who was to support and look after his kids. So people could have multiple wives to make sure that the kids are well looked after. So from that area, I come from a group of people called Nguni people. And then Nguni would be my own tribe, which is Amandungwa or the Kumalos. But there were also the Nduadwes, there were also the Zondis, there were the Zumas, like the president of South Africa right now, and the Zulu. In the lower part of South Africa, there were the Khosa and the Sutu. Mandela is part of the Khosa. My mother's family are also part of that. The, the Khadebe, part of the Khosa. But then there were also the Afrikaners that were now, over a number of years, they were settled in South Africa their language was no longer Dutch or German or French. It was Afrikaans. And with the Dutch East Indian Company needing people to work there, not employing the local blacks as slaves uh, or taking them on as slaves, they brought in slaves from Malaysia. And that's why you have the people in the Cape who are called the Cape Malay. And because they're a mixed breed, they're, they're called collards. Uh, so they're not black, they're not white. And uh, when you listen to them speak Afrikaans, they have a slightly different accent from the Afrikaners or the other people in the country. So now you've got the Bantu groups and the Ngunis coming from the north, the Afrikaners and the Khosas in the southern area, and the Bushmen. So with the news up in the northern part of South Africa amongst the Zulus or the other tribes hearing that there's these white people that are moving in and they're going to take over, and they'll take over under one king. And at the time, everyone knew that it was King George, you know, the English, because the English eventually came and tried to 
take over and colonize the Afrikaners. And the English were moving up north, chasing the Afrikaners who were running away from actually going away to find their own independence away from the English. And Shaka Zulu started to unify their Bantu groups under one king. And he did that not by requesting nicely. Obviously, it meant that he needed to, it's either you obey or you, you die. And at the same time, he would kill people that didn't want to join him or people joined him because they were afraid of being killed. And that's when the Zulus basically came about with all the other families joining together under Shaka. And the Kumalos, who are my family under King Mzilikazi, left running away from Shaka because Mzilikazi had a disagreement with Shaka, which involved basically he stole some of the loot after conquering one tribe and didn't give it back to Shaka. And Shaka was basically forced to chase him. And as Zilikazi was traveling away from Gozulu Natal, which is northeast of South Africa, down to central South Africa, which is now the Free State, he was conquering all the other tribes, incorporating them into the Kumalos, up into Transvaal, which is now Gauteng, to the northern Transvaal, all the way into what's now Zimbabwe. And at the time, it was called the Shona land. And from all the tribes and the groups of people he was conquering, and they formed one tribe called the Amandebele, the Debeles. That's why part of Zimbabwe back then was called the Matebele land. So now you've got all these different tribes moving in within South Africa. The Afrikaners moving away from the English in the Cape, settling in places like Kimberley where diamonds were discovered and going into Johannesburg and the Gauteng region where gold was discovered, platinum was discovered. The mining mushroomed and grew over there and the demand for laborers. That's when Johannesburg was formed. And with Johannesburg being formed, the English being in power, pushing up Afrikaners away, that resulted into two wars in South Africa. They're called the South African Wars. But they all were used to known as the Anglo-Boer War. And the Anglo-Boer War, I believe, was a difficult time for the Afrikaners that resulted in, I believe, the first concentration camp in South Africa with the British coming in with the scorched earth way of fighting where they basically went and destroyed farms, burnt the fields, killed the animals, and imprisoned women so that when the men came back from the break of fighting, they won't have food or anything. So that created resentment amongst Afrikaners, but also the fact that some of the black tribes were working with the English. So over the years, when eventually there was a democracy and stabilization of the country in South Africa, that created resentment amongst all the tribes. So the blacks feeling resentful of the whites because they were profiting off the land, which they rightfully believe it was their land because they were there. And the Afrikaners believing that they were the ones that came to Africa and there were multiple generations in southern Africa and they cannot go back to Europe because that's where they belonged. And there was also a belief amongst the older Afrikaans group that as they were kicked away from the Cape, they were like the Israelites that were moving away from Egypt into the promised land. And obviously it was a promised land with diamonds and golds. And over the years, the country prospered and the resentment continued. And the English were eventually outvoted because the Afrikaners came up with the strategy of education, commerce, and eventually political power. And when the Afrikaners took over the political power in South Africa, I believe it was in 1948, for the first time the National Party came. And over the years, they came up with the laws that basically said you can only work for the government if you spoke both English and Afrikaans. And obviously the English were not getting the jobs and eventually they came up with the law that said, you know, if you are not white, you do not have the same privileges as the white population. And apartheid became the law that separated the different nations. But in separating the blacks from the white, it meant that the white had all the opportunities and the blacks didn't. The apartheid government came up with a policy where they will say they wanted to have educated slaves. So the blacks could not have the same type of education as the white, which meant if you were a black and finished high school, you 
could not find a job as an engineer or you could not go for the univer- to the university and be a doctor or a pilot. So what else can you do? So many blacks, my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation, they either worked at the mines, worked at the factory, became policemen, became nurses or were unemployed. And that's why when I saw the movie The Help, I could identify with that because my grandmother was a maid. You know, that's what women did. They worked cleaning houses. And that was apartheid. I believe it resulted in the whole generation of disenfranchised people where as a black person, you know, you can go to school, but you will never be the president. You will never be a doctor. You'll never be anything. Or you can be a police. You can go work in a mine. You know, we were not even allowed to join the military. If you were the police, the blacks hated you because you were enforcing their apartheid laws. What were some of the laws of apartheid? Let's talk about passbooks and homelands. Now, when the world, the rest of the world, was complaining to South Africa about apartheid, the way that the president at the time explained it to the world, he said, we're separate but equal. So it became separate but equal policy. And from that policy, they created what they call the Bantu stance or like the reservations for different tribes. And they said that each tribe has a right to empower itself and govern itself and live out its full potential. But the jobs were in Johannesburg and in the city. So if you were Tosa, Zulu, Sutu, and you in your reservation, if you wanted to go work in Johannesburg, you needed to have this passbook, which is an ID book where it gets stamped. And if they catch you in Johannesburg and you don't have the passbook, you automatically get arrested. Because of that passbook, there was also a um, curfew for blacks. If you work in town, you needed to be in Soweto by 6 p.m. If you're not in Soweto by 6 p.m., it meant that you were there illegally. You, you can get arrested. So that created a burden on people to live this life where they're constantly panicking. If you miss a bus, that means you're going to be arrested. And if you get arrested, you get beaten up. They were mistreated. And that's when the ANC was formed. And the ANC was formed basically to say there are laws that are not correct and we need to change these laws so that all of South Africans can benefit from not just the wealth of the country, but we can live in this country that belongs to all of us. And that's the ANC. They were not separatists. They were not saying South Africa is for Africans. They were saying Africa or South Africa is for everyone. And one of the laws that was crazy for apartheid was the immorality law where it was legal for people of different races to marry one another. So if you were caught sleeping with a person of a different race, you were arrested, period. And those were just the crazy laws that were enforced by the South African government. And that's what Nelson Mandela and Joe Slovo, who was a white man who joined the ANC, Katrada, who was Indian, formed you know the ANC as this multiracial organization fighting for the rights of everyone in South Africa because it was not just the black people who were oppressed by these laws, but also white people who saw the injustice suffered because of that. And that ended up in revolts, people like Nelson Mandela being arrested and being in prison. And over the years, the years that I grew up as a young boy in Soweto, school was rough because at any given point, the police will be there kicking doors in school, looking for older guys who they thought were terrorists. Families were broken. I remember cousins. I have cousins who I believe have never experienced what it means to be a teenager because as soon as they were 13, they were conscious enough to want freedom. And they left the country and trained with the ANC's military camp in Mozambique, uh, Zambia, Tanzania. I have an uncle. uh, The last time I saw him, I was probably seven years old. He never came back because he left the country and died in Tanzania. So families were destroyed. I've got cousins and relatives who never finished high school because they resented having an education that will not prepare them to be engineers. It prepared them to serve the white bosses as miners or chefs. And they, in 1976, they started revolting against the apartheid education. And they suffered a lot because of that. They stopped going to school. And now, believe it's over 20 years after apartheid, they are unemployable because they don't have the education. And it's too late for them. 
the only jobs they have or they qualify for are manual, low-wage work, which is why right now people in the mines in South Africa are protesting. There's all these protests in mines because the gold companies and platinum companies, diamond companies are making billions of profits, but those people earn less than $200 a month. Floyd, let's talk about how that directly affected you. You told me about a memory that you had when you were seven years old when you were in school and then what you continued to experience throughout university during apartheid. Because I remember the police were enforcing the law and when the protests were started by the youth, they will raid schools. I remember schools not having windows because kids would throw stones at schools, destroying the schools that represented the apartheid government. And one day the cops came looking for all the guys who were terrorists. They kicked doors in schools. Everyone at school ran away. I think I was in grade three or something like that. And running away, there were tear gas, rubber bullets. I couldn't even see my own hand. And I remember seeing this kid. I'm a tall guy, so... This kid, five years old, was tiny, and he was crying, and he was lost. I remember holding him by hand and running, getting to my grandfather's house, wetting our face with water, and I don't think I can even recognize this kid right now, but I just remember him sitting there in the kitchen, uh, my grandfather giving us tea and bread we ate, and once the riots quieted down, my grandfather says, yeah, well, you can go home, so he, he left. So we lived in that environment. So my family being politically involved, it was important for me to get an education as far as my mother was concerned. So we left Johannesburg, we left Soweto and moved to KwaZulu-Natal where I spent my teenage years. And to get away from all the nonsense of fighting for liberation, as my parents thought, they sent me to boarding school. So I spent my teenage years in boarding school. And what was amazing about the boarding school was that it was a Presbyterian missionary school. And for the first time, the teachers that were there were white teachers who who were teaching black kids. So it was an all-black school. So now we've got these teachers that were teaching us, and the purpose of the schools, missionary schools, were there to make sure that they counter apartheid's legacy. That's why people like Nelson Mandela went to missionary schools. Bishop Desmond Tutu went to missionary school. So the schools were there. For the first time, I was in school being taught by these white teachers who treated me like I was a human being, not just another darkie or a black kid. And we'd have these missionaries coming in from England, and they would tell us that we can go overseas. I'd never thought I could ever leave the country. And they would teach us about the true history of South Africa, about the ANC, about Nelson Mandela, things we never, we never taught. But they also taught us about true meaning of struggle that you don't protest for the sake of protesting, you protest because of a higher ideal. This episode of The Trail Less Traveled is sponsored by Osea Malibu, the original plant-based, results-driven skincare line. Funded and run by a family of women inspired by the sea, Osea formulates botanical-powered products that have shown proven results for all skin concerns. Hey y'all, this is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and I was thrilled to take the family of women who run Osea down the middle fork of the Salmon River in Idaho. Around the campfire at night, I heard a lot about their company, and I'm so happy to partner with them, knowing that every product is sustainably packaged, non-toxic, cruelty-free, vegan, and made with love in California. Osea puts your health and the health of the planet first with potent skin and body care solutions that are pure, safe, and effective. Their skin-nourishing products are made entirely of plant-derived ingredients, are non-toxic, and a good choice for moms-to-be. Go to oseamalibu.com slash Mandela for $10 off your first purchase of $90 or more, free shipping for U.S. orders of $75 or more, and free samples with every order. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com slash M-A-N-D-E-L-A. The original plant-based, results-driven skincare line. We're here in South Africa, recording at the most southern point on a nature reserve, surrounded by Fainbos. We're speaking with Amy Moka. Amy, let's talk about... Apartheid, it's not an easy thing to talk about, but I would be very grateful if you could shed some light on that. 
<clears throat> with the colored people, the actual culture, we talk about culture, not race as much. We try to be a bit more inclusive in South Africa. Anything to get away from the nasty apartheid plaster that we've got stuck on our foreheads. Uh, because people in the rest of the world obviously don't know that what they did would still do sometimes. It's still flipping apartheid, but we are obviously the only country, I think, and it's because we publicly ended it, that uh, everybody else is still carrying on. If you're in Germany and they're talking about the Turkish or you're sitting in England and they're talking about the Pakis, but in South Africa, we don't operate like that. The colored people are very much the same as us. Uh, very similar culture in a way and also the background of the colored people come back from the Cape Malayan the Dutch obviously they enjoyed the company of the local people and we had Kosa people but in the Western Cape itself we had what we call the Khoisan people that's very similar to the Bushmen from the Kalahari Desert so the Khoisan people were here and then obviously with the Cape Malayan and that's how the interesting culture of the Cape Coloreds or the Colored people came to exist. They're also Afrikaans speaking, just like we are mostly. And then we've got the Khoisan people that are more from the Transkei area. And so there's a quite a culmination, but between the Colored people, the Khoisan people, the Zulu people, they do not like to have marriages across their cultures. So for them, that's quite a big no-no. So it is very interesting. It's not a clear-cut thing. There's a large gray area in between with all of this. And the apartheid thing, we are still suffering from it. We had nothing to do with it, but it's the old regime. There were things that were brought in during apartheid, education systems and so on, that were very well established. But the sadness was that people did think they were superior to others and they were treated very badly. The ID books that we carry around nowadays in America, you've got a social security number. We actually have a little book now, a card later on with our ID number, identification number on. But during the apartheid years, they were called the PAS. A PAS is like a, a pass or a permit. So if you were a colored person, you were found anywhere and you didn't have these, you were locked up and quite often beaten. Men and women would be separated. White people and colored people weren't allowed to go to the same parties or the same dances. It used to be that they were together. And then when they set the apartheid law was brought in, all of that changed. There's a massive thing going on in Cape Town still. They call it the old Cape Quarter where the Cape Malayan people lived with a nice little colored houses are painted in different colors and so on. And years ago, there were colored people living in those homes and they were actually chased out during the apartheid years. They were told to go live somewhere else. They were taken away from the area and they put white people in those houses and very poor white people as well. And, you know, factory workers, people working on railroads and so on. So it's created a lot of political unrest in the Cape area. We, that's where the Cape Town, the riots came from. We're talking about the 70s, 80s. So a lot of our armed forces, our defense force were involved with that. And that was a terrible time. A lot of people were chased off and they had to build their own shacks, basically shanty towns. The police and the army would have to go in there and they would go look for activists. Our own Nelson Mandela was one of the guys that lived in one of these shacks as well. And they were part of a political group which actually mostly hid and operated through Zimbabwe. And they would all go there for training. It wasn't a good time. It was a time where some of these groups, so they weren't all... The activists were some of them quite cruel. They planted bombs in factories where there were some of their own cause of people working in, colored people working in that got blown up and so on. And it was all in the name of politics. But they were freedom fighters, and so nobody talks about the death that they also caused. It's a very complicated story. It's a, a difficult topic, but not because we don't like to talk about it. It's difficult to talk about because there are on both sides people that suffered tremendously. We had some of our South African writers, one of the best ones called Brighton Breitenbach. He married a colored lady. 
and he was chased out of the country and they were sent to St. Helena Bay which is an island off the coast and they had to go live there in exile they weren't allowed to come back to South Africa and after apartheid him and his wife they moved back to South Africa they lived in Bonneville of all places for a long time and he's probably one of our most controversial writers that we have quite a few stories I mean that's in those times as well that people like Dave Matthews left South Africa to start because there was no interest in music at that point life was very serious in South Africa and very hard on both sides again people that weren't part of the political movements for apartheid my family my grandfather they were very good Christians he didn't believe in apartheid he didn't believe it was the right thing to do it wasn't the way to live so we learned from a young age that every single person is respected We're speaking with my father, Samuel Pellisier van Eden, talking to him about growing up in South Africa during the apartheid era. You've always called yourself an African, but for those listening who wouldn't understand why you being white and still being an African would make sense, could you explain to them what South Africa was like then? Well, interesting way of putting it. There was peace talks between the leader of Zambia, Kenneth Kuwanda, in the 70s and he tried to mediate talks. He actually framed the term of the white African tribe because he looked upon the Afrikaner as African, being that we were there since early 1652, 1648, basically. And my family's oldest ancestor that goes back was a Dutch sailor, and it was in 1652. And we are called Afrikaners. We're basically French, Dutch, German descendants, mostly Lutheran or Dutch Reform. Near the Dutch Reform Church was the religion, very conservative, ultra-conservative church. We spoke a language called Afrikaans, which is a derivative of Dutch. It's more like Flemish. It sounds more like Flemish, but it uses words from the French or the German origin as well. And then in high school, we had to study Dutch as a language because that's where our language started from. And the language is Afrikaans. It's a more guttural language than English, but not as guttural as Dutch is. How did the Dutch end up in South Africa? Let's talk about the spice route. And more importantly, who was there before the Dutch came? South Africa, the Cape was discovered by... Vasco da Gama and La Bartolomeas Diaz, these were Portuguese explorers in the 1400s. And then the East Indies was discovered, India and the spice route, Ceylon. And the Dutch had a company called the Verenigde Oost Indische Compagnie, United East Indian Company. And they pretty much was the main traders to Ceylon and India for the spices, cloves, peppercorns, things like that was very, very pricey. And so what happened is they needed a halfway point. They needed a station. And in the 1648, they sent Van Riebeek to establish a halfway station. And he bought land or traded for land with the Hottentots, which is the Khoi people. They were people of a brown color, peppercorn type hair, sheep herders and cattle herders that lived there. They weren't black, they were brown, and they were, I would say, cousins to the sun, which is the bushman. And then there was another group that was beachcombers. They mostly ate seafood and lived on the coast, gatherers and herders. And so the Dutch traded with them, and the Dutch was only interested in having a halfway station. They didn't think of developing the greater South Africa and have that as a colony. So if you were in the castle or the trading station for so many years, then they allowed you to become a small farmer, and you could only trade with the Verenigde Oost Indische Compagnie, with the VOC. But slowly people dwindled off in other directions and created their own republics and things like that. And then when the French Huguenots got prosecuted in France for being Protestant, they were given rights to come and live there. And same as the Germans, when they were prosecuted for their religious beliefs. So 
that's where the German and the French also came in. And that's how wine farming basically started in South Africa, also in the early 1700s. So that's where the whole group of the Afrikaner people developed out of those three cultures, French, German, Dutch. You spoke about the Khoi and the Khoisan, descendants of the Bushmen, as they're called in modern day. I'd also like to talk to you about the Bantu tribes, the Zulu, Nyotkoza, more of the black tribes that are coming from the Eastern Cape in South Africa. South Africa has over 25 different languages and growing now because we have people coming in from Zimbabwe, Nigeria, the DRC. Well, that was always the thing. When I was a kid, the Kosa people, it was mostly in the area where I grew up, used to come and get jobs, but they had to have a passbook. They had a similar system as here in the sense of their tribal area. In their tribal area, that's what the apartheid was built on. It's like they live in their tribal area, and for them to come and work in a white area, they have to have a passbook. And whenever a policeman asked them for their passbook, they had to produce a passbook, otherwise they could be arrested. As a kid, I remember being that I grew up on a dairy farm. The black Khoza people, they loved the animals, so they were the herders. And they were the people that we employed most of the time for dairy farming. There wasn't drinking, wasn't too much of a problem. And the passbooks were all kept at the house. And then in the middle of the night, the police might make a raid on your farm and knock on the people's doors and ask for the passbooks. And a kid would slip out and run up to the farmhouse and wake my dad up and selling them this. The police is raiding the houses to look for illegal workers. And I remember one night my dad took the double barrel shotgun and on the ride down to where the workers' houses was, he fired the shotgun out of the window of the pickup just into the air twice. The young policeman didn't know what was going on, what to do of it. He basically ran off the farm. I grew up in a house where we did not approve of apartheid and so my father was always at battle with the police about the raids and etc. For those listening who don't know what apartheid was, can you define it for them and what it was like to grow up in South Africa during apartheid? Apartheid was something that was developed by a guy called Favurt. And apart, it means what it says, apart, hate, apartness. You live together but apart. Basically, they qualified people as Bantu, which is the black natives, or colored, which was the brown people, offspring from the Sun and the Khoisan and Malaysian slave blood. The colored people had more straight hair, looks more like Brazilian influence. And that was one of their tests. When people applied for their different ethnicity, they would put a pencil into the person's hair. And if the pencil moves through the hair, then he would be colored if he's brown. It broke up a lot of families in the sense that the grandpa or the parents might have been white and then it might be brown people in as well because before 1948 we did not have apartheid. So end of 1948 is when the National Party was voted into power where the apartheid came into place. So that meant that the Khoza people had their area where they lived and they weren't supposed to live in areas where the white people lived. The colored people could live pretty much everywhere but they didn't have voting rights. You had your number one people, which was white, and it would be better if you spoke Afrikaans. But English-speaking whites had the same rights as Afrikaans-speaking whites. Then you had your colored people and also your Indian people from East Indian origin. And then you had the blacks, who was the native people. They had the least amount of rights, also because they were the majority of the tribes of the people, was. Yeah, Kosa, Zulu, Venda, Sutu, Tswana, Swazi. Today in South Africa, you have 11 official languages. And all of that means is that every person is allowed to vote and read and go to school in his language. English is the major economic language and the language is spoken in parliament. But everybody's language is recognized in the post-apartheid years. Apartheid caused a lot of problems, cost a lot of money. Was it a struggle to grow up in a family that did not support apartheid? Growing up in Swellendam, South Africa, you mentioned once that you wanted to hang a poster of Jimi Hendrix and that it was a big deal because Jimi Hendrix in the United States was a big symbol, but in South Africa he was black. And that meant you couldn't necessarily hang him on your wall because you were a white child. It was difficult because my father was an opposition leader. My mother 
grew up in a total Afrikaner thing where apartheid was supported, although she wasn't a racist. Both of them taught us to respect people of all races. But my mother had a problem with us putting a poster of Jimi Hendrix on the wall because she said, what would the servants think of, yes, we have a picture of a black man on the wall? So it gives you an idea. It was very confusing as a child apartheid. You play on the farm. All your friends is black on the farm that you play with, the workers' kids. And tomorrow morning, all the white kids get picked up in a school bus and go to school. And the colored kids was required to go to school, but the black kids wasn't required to go to school. But if they did go to school, they ran to school. I mean, the four miles, barefoot, winter, whatever. My father used to take the kids in on the pickup on rainy days, but otherwise, that was pretty much the thing. It was just, it was kind of accepted. It's like, oh, that's how you do it. I was a popular kid at school, but come election year, which was in South Africa, it's every five years. In that fifth year, I was seen as a, a black lover, that I love black people and basically seen as a communist because I would want to give a black person a vote. So, yeah, it was confusing. You have friends that's basically racist. You grow up with people using slang words and things like that. Your mind is always conflicting when you're a kid. You don't know what the heck is going on, what's supposed to do, what's not supposed to do. So, yeah, it was kind of difficult. We're recording the trail that's traveled today at the Caltex petrol station at the waterfront in Cape Town, South Africa. And I'm sitting here with Wayne Lekay. Wayne is originally from South Africa originally from Cape Town, and well, I'm going to let you talk about that. So Wayne describes himself as a Cape-colored person, but if you're listening, you might not know what that means. So Wayne, I guess before I talk to you about your childhood, what do you mean when you say you're a Cape-colored person? Yeah, so I'm not a black race person, and so we were classed as colored people here in South Africa and in Cape Town as well. I want to talk to you more about apartheid later and why people were classed in different categories. But before we talk about that, Wayne, my first question for you is where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? Okay, so when you say that I grew up, you're talking about the part of the Cape Flats. So that's where I grew up. That's where I did my schooling and everything. It's a place called Grassy Park from the Cape Flats side. The area wasn't too bad, you know. It's not as worse as some of the other Cape Flats areas. So, yeah, the other Cape Flats areas, it's very, very, very challenging because the social economics and things, the challenges there are great. So, of course, unemployment is high, it's poverty, everything. And also the gangsterism is quite big in those areas. So it's very easy to become a gangster in those areas. So it's much more challenging. Because of my parents being Christians, it helped me not to be part of that. Yeah. And so when people become a gangster early on in life, how does that happen? They have uh, different initiations. And obviously today it's from what it is now and what it was like that time. It's completely different. When I'm 53 years old, so during that time it was knives and we called it pangas. It was quite bigger knives. Now, of course, it's with more guns and things. You know, it's worse now. That's why our murder rate is much higher now because people die me. That's So it's what's worse than what it was before. So the gangsters are not the same what it was now, the youngsters. They use uh, children, youngsters, from 13, 14, 15 years old, recruit them, and they let them do the crime. Because for them to go to court, it's not easy for the government to just prosecute them. You don't even know it's a youngster with a gun, and he shoots you. That makes it worse. Wayne, would you say that the crime in South Africa is worse now than when you were a kid? Yeah, for sure. Yes, yes, yes. Now, 50% worse than what it was before because it's more drugs, more turfs, so that makes it worse. When you say drugs in South Africa, you're not talking about marijuana. You're talking about tick, hey? That's right. Yeah, that's crystal meth. It's one of the worst, I suppose, and you have... Oh, there's such a lot of things. 
So when, when we're talking about crime in South Africa, because a lot of people outside of South Africa ask immediately about the crime in South Africa. So would you say that a lot of the crime in South Africa now is directly linked to drugs? Mainly drugs and gangsterism, yeah. So when the foreigners come here, they're not really exposed to it, you know, where the murder happens. If I can tell you, it's mainly amongst the colored people. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm a colored guy, so I say that it's gangsterism amongst the colored people. It's, it's really high. So, Wayne, let's talk about that now. We're sitting here with Wayne at the Caltex petrol station at the waterfront in Cape Town, South Africa. It's a nice day. Wayne agreed to talk with me while I wait for my bus. But right when I met you, and just now you've used a word, a term that is pretty common here in South Africa, but not internationally, the word colored. So can we talk about apartheid, what went on there, and why were people given different labels? Yeah, it's very complex, but it's like you had uh, your colored people, you had your white people, then of course, uh, like they said, black people. But I mean, we were all black people, but anyway, those are the black race. So during that era, I never went to school with black people together with colored people. And we never lived together as well. During that term, they had areas, they said those areas are black areas, white areas, and colored areas. And that is how I lived, in a colored area. You see, so during that term, I remember, so I said I'm 53, so just a little bit before that, it was still open. And then just one day I saw that my grandparents had to move from where they were, from that area, because that area was declared as a white area. So we had to move out. So we moved to the colored areas. If you really think about it, people won't really say that, but then there was almost like segregation amongst black people as well, if you think about it. That's how I grew up, you know, differently with white people and black people. That's what the word apartheid means, eh? Separateness or apartness. That's right, separate, yeah. So we were separately. The stations, the beaches, everything else. I'm just talking about the basic things, the restaurants, those things. There was different areas for us, yeah. And for the black people, at some stage, I believe it was even worse, yeah. But I think that the worst thing that was there was the education system. And that was touched because there's something that which they called the Bantu education system that was there amongst black people, almost like inferior education system. And if you think about it today, education is very important. For me, I think it's not just about being a doctor or a carpenter or whatever, but it's just your values and everything, your morals, your standards. It will be much higher if you have education. If you go into the townships, those areas you will still see some of those kids has got no hell in life to become better. That's a hardship. If you don't have the money, I mean, there are kids amongst those areas that become successful, but there are most of them that don't come out being successful and just become gangsters. It's just a vicious circle that carries on, you know. Father's a gangster, mother was a gangster, this carries on, you know, doesn't stop. And we need to stop it. Would you say one of the ways that we can stop it in South Africa, as well as other countries, is investing more in education? Yeah, sometimes I think we think about universities and things, but that's the foundation level of any person that is very, very important in life. If you have a good foundation, it's much better if you start at the basic. And I think sometimes there's not enough money. They need to put some more money and help more with the basic foundation with the kids. And if we start there, then it will be better. Beautiful. We're speaking with Wayne here in the waterfront, Cape Town, South Africa. And Wayne, you've mentioned a couple of times the township, and I would love to talk to you about townships and what makes them a township versus where we are right now. Yeah, so a township is an area that the government gave to people free housing. 
So those houses are rented and they pay minimum amount of money per month for the house. So something like 100 rand or something like that for a month, right? But then you also have the informal settlement. So informal settlement is something that is a shack. There's no toilets, there's no water, things. It is there, but they need to go to it, you understand? So that's even worse. It's becoming like mushrooms. This is coming up more and more shacks. I mean, as you come into the city, you will see on the right-hand side, there's shacks there. And that is one of the first black townships called Langa. And you can see how the government is trying to help the people with some more housing, uh, new houses and things like that. But as much as they are building, there are many more people just erecting more shacks, you know. So it's very difficult for the government to <laughs> get rid of all the shacks that are there, and there are many. That is what you call an informal settlement. Uh, so people just decide that that's where they go, and then they, they start building up, put a shack up. Wayne, can we talk now about the classifications during apartheid? You said earlier, we're all black, but I was classified as colored. So how did the government go about classifying someone as white versus colored versus black? Also, Mahatma Gandhi, when he was here, he also was classified. So how was that classification gone about? Yeah, you got to also think about it that there's also a difference between the white people as well. During the British... And also the Dutch were here in Cape Town or in South Africa. So you have white people that is English-speaking people, and then you have English-speaking that is Afrikaans-speaking people, which we call the Buddha. And that's different as well. It's not the same. So you have that between the whites, and then you have that between the blacks, where we, the colored people, we speak Afrikaans, that is my mother tongue. And then we have 11 official languages. And those are for the black traditional. So you have the Tosa, the Zulu, the Sutu, and they all speak their different languages. Zulu, that's the language that they speak. That's their mother tongue that they speak. So those are the black people, colored people, and, and the white people. <laughs> Wayne, can we talk a little bit about the history of Cape Town and the surrounding areas? Yeah, Cape Town, you must remember that they got a lot of coloured people in Cape Town. There were more coloured people in Cape Town than in most of the other provinces. I can tell you that uh, we have a very, very big crowd of Muslim people in Cape Town but they also class as, as coloured people. It comes from the slaves and things like that. So if you walk in Cape Town, there's a free walking tour over here that they do. They take people around. They call it in the area called Bukap. They also have the area called District 6. Those are areas where we're predominantly... There's lots of coloured people, but there were a lot of Muslim people there as well. Yeah. So that's why we had in Cape Town, there was more colored people in Cape Town than black and either white people in Cape Town. Well, it used to be like that. I don't think any longer, but you would have find more colored people than, than black people and, and, and white people in Cape Town. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. All good. Thanks. And have a good one. Can we end your show with three bits of advice, life advice? Yeah. I like Bishop Desmond Tutu. He was about reconciliation. And I think we need to put the past behind us. And if we don't put that behind us, we'll never be able to go forward. So that's my take in life. Good or bad, I put it behind me and I look to a better future. Even if I may not taste it, but my grandchildren and whoever afterwards, if they can enjoy it, that will be a blessing to me. What about some advice for someone who is traveling to South Africa, to Cape Town? If you're looking at security, no, come to Cape Town. The people in the city, they're great. There's lots of people that will be able to help you. 
I think sometimes if you come here and you come and taste it, it's like we had water restrictions, we had, uh, there's a lot of things that we had, and the people that came here, they, they came to see that they could still live without that challenges that's there. And even so, when you come to Cape Town, I know that you would enjoy your time that you come out here. All right, so Wayne, what song would you like to end your show with? <laughs> the Cape Town people, we have a carnival. New Year's time. New Year's Day, second New Year's Day, we have a carnival. And then we say, welcome to Cape Town. And that's how they sing it. They say, welcome to Cape Town. You come and party. Yeah. Lekker, lekker, lekker. Bye, thank you. It's afternoon. Good morning. My name is Wayne Lekai. We are here in South Africa. And I will tell you about my Cape and my life. Hello, here. Your host of The Trail Less Traveled the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series. The show airs every Sunday evening at 6 Mountain Time, and you can stream it live online at trail1033.com. I'd like to thank all of my guests this evening for each of their unique perspectives on South African history and apartheid. The Trail Less Traveled is also an award-winning podcast that's available on all platforms. You can suggest a guest for the show and follow us around the world by visiting the official website, traillesstraveled.net. The Trail Less Traveled is dedicated to documenting 